Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. This bonus episode's theme is Japanophilia, as in the love of all things Japanese, but most especially their quirks, which have definitely come up once or twice on this podcast over the last few years. So we've pulled together a few of our favorites for you. We hope you enjoy them. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. First link. This next link comes from the BBC, uh, incidentally under the work life section of the website. Can't really piece that together because <laughs> this is titled The Saboteurs You Can Hire to End Your Relationship. Wow. It's kind of work life, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, it may tie into work life a little bit. It's mostly kind of in the personal life realm because in Japan, there are these private agents called Wakare Sasia. And you basically pay them to seduce your spouse or their partner in the idea of either breaking up a marriage, saving a marriage, but basically sending in like seducer spies <laughs> to do some relationship work you may be too chicken to do yourself. Wow. And this starts off with a story about a particular Wakare Sasia situation that ended kind of tragically. In 2010, Takeshi Kuwabara was sentenced for the murder of his lover, Rie Isohata. What happened was that Kuwabara was the Wakarasasia agent, this like seducer double agent. He was married with children himself, and he engineered a meeting with Isohata in a supermarket. He was a professional that was hired by Rie's husband to break up their marriage, because he basically, you need to have photographic evidence for divorce, and mm. it's needed in Japan when a divorce is contested. And so this agent, he claimed to be a single IT worker. They began an affair. It eventually led to a genuine relationship. Mm. But then once Isohata, who was the wife that, you know, the husband hired the guy to try to divorce, once she learned that he was actually a agent and it was mm. all based on deception, she tried to break off the relationship. He was, you know, in a real relationship with her now. So unwilling to let her go, he strangled her with a piece of string and then oh. was sentenced to 15 years in prison. And so, as the article notes, <laughs> the Wakara Sasia industry took a hit after the uh. killing of Isohata. <clears throat> so it basically inspired some reform of the industry, including a requirement that private detective agencies obtain licenses. <laughs> and it's still a controversial and high-cost situation, but around 270 of these Wakara Sasia agencies are advertising online. It can cost anywhere from about 400,000 yen for a straightforward case where there may be lots of information about a target's activities. That's roughly around $4,000. Hmm. But fees can go as high as 20 million yen, which is around $300,000 wow. if a client is like a politician or a celebrity and there's a lot of secrecy. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the clients are not married people who want help separating from their spouses, but include people who want their spouse's affairs broken up. So if you know that you have a spouse, they're having an affair, you still want to be married to them, but you just want them to knock this nonsense <laughs> off. You create a situation 
where they're seduced and seduce them away from their extramarital lover and then just ghost them. Wait, so they are creating a love square to break up a love triangle? Am right. I getting exactly. that right? <laughs> exactly right. Wow. A TV and radio producer notes that there's a market for everything in Japan. So you can rent fake family members. You can separate a child from an unsuitable girlfriend or boyfriend because everybody knows when you've got a teenager dating someone, if the parent says you shouldn't date them, it's not effective at all, right? I yeah. Yeah, I question the motivations of not just all of the people involved in paying for these services, but also the people who say to themselves, this is what I want to do for a job. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, like you noted, the one guy who murdered someone, he was married and was pretending that he wasn't. So he on his own was basically like, I'm going to go have an affair, but I'm going to get paid to have an affair. Like, it seems like anyone who does this job already is pretty sketchy to begin with. Yeah. And the one person, uh, Mochizuki, who is one of the people who kind of runs a Wakara Sasia service, it notes that he's a former musician who turned his lifelong interest in detective work into a career. So, I mean, if you're a musician... <laughs> I'm good at stalking. What career could I go into? <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. I feel like there's got to be a movie in Japan that is about this concept where a couple both hire one of these detectives <laughs> on each other. Or just Ooh. listen to the Pina Colada song. Like, that's basically... <laughs> 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 Jimmy Buffett. That's right. Agent of seduction. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Seems like we've got a bit of a theme here because Business Insider reports Japan is developing wooden satellites to send into orbit by 2023 to cut down on space junk. Wow. Like made of wood? Made of wood. <laughs> that feels just sort of inherently impossible. I'm sure you're going to tell me why it's possible, but I'm just, I, I'm immediately like, no, that's silly. <laughs> well, you know, they're they're developing them to see if it's possible. So mm -hmm. we're, we're still in early stages, but it's happening. Kyoto University is teaming up with a Japanese forestry company to develop wooden satellites to shoot into orbit by 2023. This is so steampunk, I can't even believe it. Um, a Kyoto University professor and Japanese astronaut Takao Doi told the BBC that the advantage of a wooden satellite is that if it were to fall out of orbit and burn up on re-entry, it would not release as many harmful particles as metal satellites. Quote, we are very concerned with the fact that all the satellites which re-enter the Earth's atmosphere burn and create tiny alumina particles which will float in the upper atmosphere for many years, mm -hmm. which can eventually affect the environment of the Earth, right? Sure. So Kyoto University and Sumitomo Forestry plan to experiment with how well different types of wood withstand extreme conditions on Earth with the intent to develop a wood that could take wild fluctuations in temperature and sunlight. So we may not have the exact wood prototype already growing on Earth, but let's see what can withstand really extreme stuff in the hopes that it might be able to actually exist in outer space. Hmm. And this is because space junk and debris are growing concerns among experts, right? And so even though estimates vary, right now they're believing there are about 760,000 objects larger than a centimeter currently in orbit. Well, so, but if the wooden satellites are up there, say there's two wooden satellites up there and they crash into each other, there's still a lot of space junk. There's all the wooden splinters and everything in orbit. It's only once they try to re-enter the atmosphere that they burn up, right? 
Well, yeah, and it's not trying to re-enter the atmosphere. Like if there's a collision and they get caught in the orbit, they're just sucked down and then dissolve into these metal particles that really screw up with the environment. Yeah, we'll just move from acid rain to metal rain, which, you know, uh, it's different anyway. Yeah. I I still feel like a splinter in the finger of an astronaut at 80,000 miles an hour is is still going to be a problem. I don't think that's going to be helpful. Nobody wants that. No. No. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from BBC.com, and it is titled, The Companies That Help People Vanish. Like witness protection vanish, or like I faked my death vanish? Maybe a little bit of both. Oh. So, yeah, each year some choose to disappear and abandon their lives, but in Japan, there are actual companies that can help those who are looking to disappear into thin air. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I've personally heard stories about people who have just, you know, up and disappeared, and it's practically a joke to (laughs) go out for cigarettes and never come back. Like, that's now a meme. Yeah, (laughs) right. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that it would be in Japan for them to say, let's turn this into a business. We can help with this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, after the Japan help you break up your marriage business uh, yeah. last week or a few weeks yeah. back, I'm not well, surprised life, by this at all. Yeah, businesses around life engineering do seem to be a pretty common practice. There. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in Japan, these people are sometimes referred to as johatsu. And that's the Japanese word for evaporation, but it also refers to people who will vanish on purpose into thin air and continue to conceal their whereabouts, potentially for years or even decades. Hmm. So they actually interviewed one of these johatsus for this article, and his name is Sugimoto, his family name. He's 42 years old, and he says, I got fed up with human relationships. I took a small suitcase and just disappeared. And he says that back in his small hometown, everybody knew him because of his family and their prominent local business, which he was expected to carry on. Mm -hmm, But having that role foisted on him caused him such distress that he just abruptly left town forever and told no one where he was going. Between inescapable debt and loveless marriages, the motivations that push Johatsu to evaporate can vary. And regardless of their reasons, they turn to these companies that help them through the process. And these operations are called night-moving services. Mm -hmm. And they will help these people discreetly remove themselves from their lives and will even provide lodging for them in secret whereabouts when necessary. Kind of like the night's train in Harry Potter, right? Yeah. You stick your (laughs) wand out, they'll take you where you need to go. Yeah, exactly. Except instead of going to school, you disappear from school. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and everything else. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> so Sho Hattori is somebody who founded a night-moving company in the 90s when Japan's economic bubble burst. Mm-hmm. Yep. And at first he thought that only financial ruin would really be the reason to drive people to flee their lives, but he soon realized that there were social reasons. And he claims that what he does is really support people to start a second life. I mean, if you think about it as an alternative to suicide, and Japan has a huge suicide sure. culture and rates of suicide, this is kind of a way to do that without actually dying. I yeah, mean, it still causes like, a lot of distress to everybody else in your life that you're completely ghosting, but... Yeah, I mean, that's kind of my question is, like, do these people that they abandon, do they know, like, oh, they're still alive, they've just walked away, or do they have no idea what's happened? This person Zero just closure. disappeared. Yeah. Yeah, I think it varies. In Japan, apparently privacy is fiercely protected. Missing people can freely withdraw money from ATMs without being flagged, and their family members can't even access security videos that might have captured their loved one on the run. 
police will not intervene unless there's another reason, like a crime or an accident. So all the family can really do is pay a lot for a private detective or just wait. That's it. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. So like a missing persons case just isn't even a thing unless you've got some evidence that there was a a murder or, you know, robbery or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But now the article gets into what the loved one's experience is like. So a woman who remained anonymous and whose 22-year-old son went missing and hasn't contacted her since said that she was, well, shocked. And he had failed after quitting his job twice. He must have felt miserable with his failure. So she drove to where he was living, searched the premises, and then waited in the car for days to see if he Ooh. showed up, and he huh. just never did. I, I can kind of see why maybe he wanted to get away. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she says that the police haven't been helpful, and they told her that they could only get involved if it was a suspected suicide. But since there is no note, they won't help. Hmm. And she says, wow. I understand there are stalkers. Information can be misused. This is a necessary law, perhaps. But criminals, stalkers, and parents who cannot search for their own children, all of them are treated the same way due to Mm. the protection. With the current law, without money, all I can do is check if a dead body is my son, the only thing left for me. Yeah, (laughs) kind of intense. So for the Juhatsu themselves, these feelings of regret and sadness stick with many of them long after they leave their lives behind. So Sugimoto, the businessman who left his wife and kids in that small town, tells us that I constantly have a feeling that I've done something wrong. I haven't seen my children in a year. I told them I'm on a business trip. And he says that's his only regret, which was leaving them. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it should be. (laughs) Yeah. regret. (laughs) He's currently staying in a home tucked away in a residential district of Tokyo. And the night moving company that's housing him is run by a woman called Saita, who's also going by her family name only to preserve anonymity. So she was actually a Johatsu herself who went missing 17 years ago, and she disappeared after being in a physically abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. And she describes it as being a missing person even now. She says she has various types of clients. There are people who run away from serious domestic violence or ego and self-interest, and she just doesn't judge. She never says your case isn't serious enough. Everybody has individual struggles. Hmm. And presumably money. I mean, (laughs) they're paying her for the service. (laughs) Yeah, that's got to be, I mean, I imagine uplifting your entire life and disappearing is probably a pretty expensive procedure overall. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I'm I'm still trying to imagine, like, so you, you go and you run away and you start a new life, but are you getting a job under a new name? I mean, I guess it's easier in Japan to secure yourself a new identity, but it feels like it would be pretty hard here. Right. Yeah. It almost makes it sound like when you kind of go underground with this service, you stay underground mm-hmm. and just try to keep a low profile as opposed to starting over and maybe redoing what you did. But mm-hmm. maybe that's the point, right? Yeah. Nowhere here. I feel like the article would have mentioned if they did something really spicy like you know engineering new identities and social security Mm -hmm, cards mm -hmm. or whatever the equivalent is in japan and stuff like that but they don't so i think this is really just people disappearing from their lives and trying to stay hidden Mm -hmm. yeah so for people like sugimoto these companies help him address those struggles of his own but even though he managed to disappear it doesn't mean that the traces of his old life don't linger and he says only my first son knows the truth he's 13 years old he says the words i can't forget are what dad decided is dad's life and I can't change it. Oh, and that's pretty mature sounds, for a 13-year-old. Yeah, and and he ends the article by saying, it sounds more mature than me, doesn't it? Yeah, oh. it kind of does. Yeah, oh. So at least, you know, 
These are clearly difficult situations for yeah. everybody involved, but at least there's some level of self-awareness, which is nice. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, definitely I kinda, interesting for us. I kind of feel like putting your name in a news article about it blows your cover. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everybody knows where he is now, or at least knows that he's still alive and out there. Maybe that's what he wanted. Maybe this is the beginning of him reaching out to reestablish oh, contact. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> It must be hard to market these kinds of services, too. So that might be part of this is just like a press release in a way. Well, and I'm yeah. sure they get harassed by people. Like if somebody in your life just up and disappears, the first place you're going to go is these night moving companies where you're like, OK, I'm going to pound on your door until you tell me where he went. Yeah, they've, I imagine they have to have some pretty serious security or mm-hmm. obfuscation. There's a lot going on here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> worth, worth a deep Google dive. That's right. Yeah. As in most things with Japan, there's a lot going yeah. on. <laughs> Absolutely. Super fair. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Our first link comes to us from CNN, and it's called How a Brand of Chalk Achieved Cult Status Among Mathematicians. Ah, mathematicians mm. known mm. for their cult affinities. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's some of the few professors, I think, that not only still use chalk, but have like a real devotion to it. And mm-hmm. when it comes to this particular chalk, some call it the Rolls Royce of chalk or the Steinway <laughs> of writing utensils. Others oh, wow. say that it's absolutely unbreakable, and some say it leaves absolutely no dust behind. Mm. But what? it it turned some of the world's brightest minds into hoarders <laughs> going to great length for just a few sticks of the stuff. <laughs> Max Lieblick, a mathematics professor at the University of Washington, said, I didn't want to become a chalk dealer, but I did like the idea that I could be, you know, the first stick is free chalk dealer on the block in my department. Wow. This is some potent stuff. So, how did this particular brand of chalk develop a cult-like following? Well, Hagoromo is the manufacturer, and it's known as the full-touch chalk. Dave Bayer, a mathematics professor at Barnard in New York City, was quoted as saying, it'd be like Picasso using Sharpies on a piece of waxed paper instead of using an actual canvas and oil paints, just in terms of like what it's like to use other non-Hagoromo full-touch. Right, that trash. Exactly. Yeah, that that (laughs) plebeian stuff. (laughs) Liebelik says it doesn't break as easily. The way it writes just feels right. And Bayer said it's like skiing fresh powder. I mean, the metaphors they use to kind of elevate this have me super curious. Like, I want to get on a blackboard and kind of doodle with some of this stuff. Even David Eisenbud, a mathematics professor at the University of California at Berkeley, says, The legend around this chalk is that it's impossible to write a false theorem using the chalk. But he's quick to note, I think I've disproved that many times. (laughs) So the story of this chalk, Hagoromo Stationery is the name of the company, and they first began manufacturing chalk in Japan back in 1932. But it really wasn't until the last few decades that American mathematicians fell in love with it. One of them discovered it when he went to the University of Tokyo years ago, and one of the professors said, you know, we actually have better chalk than you do in the States. (laughs) I said, oh, go on, chalk is chalk, and I was surprised to find that he was right. But because the brand did not import into the United States, mathematicians started ordering boxes online or through designated chalk dealers who began making (laughs) businesses by supplying the chalk to professors in particular. So when it comes to the secret sauce, the formula is still a mystery, but everyone has their own hypothesis. 
Liebelich assumes the special ingredient is angel tears. <laughs> uh, someone else may have hypothesized that it's got clamshells in its composition, hmm. but it's still a mystery. It's a proprietary secret. And a lot of college administrators are starting to move away from blackboards, right? They prefer whiteboards or newer technology like these smart boards. And so as the demand for blackboards came down, so did the demand for chalk. One guy said, it's pretty much just six-year-old children and mathematicians. Uh, we're the only last ones left using chalk. Yeah, right? I was going to say, <laughs> my kids' my kids' entire school have switched to smart boards, like you said. I think they call them Promethean boards or something, but it's 100% mm -hmm. digital. They don't have blackboards at all. Exactly. And so if you are using chalk as a kid, it's probably out on the sidewalk making hopscotch grids yeah. or whatever else it is. But when Hagoromo basically announced it was going out of business in 2014, it caused huge ripples in the math community. One guy referred to it as a chalk apocalypse, which felt like a real oversight in that he could have called it a chalk apocalypse. Yeah. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> and so what happened is mathematicians across America did a very American thing and began stockpiling. In true mathematician fashion, one guy calculated how many boxes he would need to last 10 to 15 years and <laughs> bought that many boxes. One guy took a step <laughs> further and single-handedly bought the entire Amazon supply in the middle of the night. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, it's not the most expensive stuff, but it's certainly not cheap. So at regular market price, a box of 72 sticks of Hagoromo Full Touch go for about $17 US. But during the rush, some dealers were raising the price to nearly $25 a box, and production ended on March 31st, 2015. Oh. But we got a happy story here. While American mathematicians were being American and were hoarding all of this chalk, on the other side of the world, a teacher in Korea took a different approach. Shin Hyung-suk was like, wait a minute, what if I just bring the technology to Korea and we just continue making Hagoromo chalk? I'll do it. We got to keep having this chalk. And the president really tried to stop him. He said, listen, you're a teacher with no experience in manufacturing. This is not a decision to make lightly to just set up a manufacturing business here. But the Korean teacher won him over by saying, I believe Hagoromo is the best chalk in the world. And yes, there are products that are bound to disappear as times change, but the best quality product should be the last to disappear. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, the Korean teacher, Shin, he set out to transfer 16 shipping containers worth of machinery from Japan to Korea. He invested all of his savings into learning, replicating, and perfecting the Hagoromo process, all in the name of this amazing angelic chalk. And then when Watanabe even visited the factory while he was still in a wheelchair to inspect the new quality, it was perfect. Time and investment paid off. It was exactly the same. And thanks to this one Korean teacher, Hagaromo continues to be produced today. And, you know, of course, it's better for the community, for the fraction of the community that loves this chalk, for this chalk to be produced. And, sure. you know, one guy notes, there's incredible value to this, but the value is in using it up, not hoarding it. Mm -hmm. They end on this quote, there's a saying that there are teachers who have never used Hagoromo full-touch chalk, but there are no teachers who have only used it once. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm curious about, I, I don't even have a chalkboard in here, but I'm like, maybe I should get one just yeah. to experience. Uh, I'm actually looking at the Hagoromo Full Touch Color Chalk, one box full of 72 pieces on Amazon, and it is right now $50, oh. including 
Yeah, uh, well, $10 shipping fee, so and there's only one the seller. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. and, and you're talking about colored chalk here, so see if you can find the white chalk. The white oh, this chalk is, is the white chalk. Aw, well. <laughs> I hold out hope. I believe in this Korean teacher. Hey, I believe this story has a happy ending. I feel like it does have a happy ending. If he saved the business and is able to raise the prices in order to keep himself going, more power to him. There we go. A spiritual experience in the form of chalk is probably worth $50 for 17 stick. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It might exactly be. Exactly right. Maybe yeah. this is part of a plan. Good for him. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. You all will be very pleased to know that Vicer's reporting, Japan is using a robotic monster wolf to scare bears away from people's houses. Cool. <laughs> There's cool. a lot of animals in that. It's a monster wolf to scare bears. Away from people's houses. That's absolutely okay. right. So if All you right. had this on your 2020 bingo card, go ahead and check <laughs> it off. <laughs> on Japan's northernmost island of Hokkaido, one town has installed a robot monster wolf to protect residents from encroaching bears. It's basically a scarecrow wolf that is equipped with a motion sensor that, when tripped, spurs the metallic beast into a red, LED-eyed, howling sequence. And if you can, I highly recommend visiting the article because it's got a picture of this robotic wolf that is so derpy, it looks adorable. I mean, it's got like this rubber or silicone kind of face and its snout is kind of bent a little bit in the picture, but it's got these red glowing eyes. It's got kind of a ruff of fur around it. It looks more like a chupacabra than a wolf, I'll be honest. (laughs) It was a joint project between Hokkaido-based machinery from Otaseki Hokkaido University, and the Tokyo University of Agriculture. And the bots were first placed on Hokkaido farmland in 2016 to fend off wolves and other predators from livestock. So now there are actually 62 monster wolves all across Japan. (laughs) But Takikawa's recent installation is the first that was designed to protect humans. So these things aren't, they're not straight up patrolling. They're like in one place like those Halloween decorations where you get too close and it's like... (laughs) That's exactly right. Hopefully okay. it has a scarier sound and right, glowing right. red eyes to signify <laughs> danger. As Yuji Ota, the head of Otaseki, said in an interview, we want to let the bears know human settlements aren't where you live and help with the coexistence of bears and people. <laughs> <laughs> so this particular machine has worked in wildlife management before. It's a rather new science, but robots are enhancing global conservation efforts. I mean, not necessarily this monster wolf, but robotics are responsible for swimming the depths to pick up trash. We're also using technology to monitor biodiversity and environmental health, as well as reduce illegal exploitation of wildlife and reduce human and wildlife conflict. So this particular town has just more than 36,500 residents, and bear sightings were extremely rare. There was usually one sighting every few years. But this year, since the end of May, there have been 10 in this town alone. Hmm. So the Takikawa officials have placed a four-foot-long, three-foot-high scarecrow, uh, this monster wolf, in a neighborhood just outside the city center, and it will remain there until hibernation season begins at the end of November. So coming up pretty soon. And the robots have proven themselves useful in fending off boars and deers and crop fields, but the trial is still out on how they're going to fare with the bears. I don't know. I feel like bears are pretty smart. Like, I think it's going to work for a while, but eventually they're going to figure out, oh, that thing doesn't hurt me. It just makes a lot of noise. 
I'm going to go right past it. This may be a temporary situation, but Mm -hmm. it's certainly an upgrade for what they have been doing. Yumi Angreni, a former resident of the Hokkaido town Sapporo and an avid hiker, mentioned that hiking in Hokkaido, especially places with bear sightings, requires bringing a bear bell, and it is not for amateur hikers. So (laughs) I have no idea what a bear bell sounds like, but to your point, they're smart. Maybe they've acclimated and now it just signals, hey, there's a human here. Yeah, that's, yum, the, yum, yum. that's the dinner bell right now is what <laughs> exactly. it is. <laughs> I mean, if you want to have a negative association with that whole Pavlov thing, I'm not sure the ringing of a bell is really <laughs> going to be the deterrent you want it to be. Next link. Next, Next link. This article comes to us from Mainichi.jp, a Japanese news website, and it's titled Rent a Person Who Does Nothing in Tokyo Receives Endless Requests Gratitude. What? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, a 37-year-old Tokyo man who says he rents himself out to other people to do nothing has been inundated with gratitude from Twitter users, indicating people are happy with his new form of support. One user wrote, I'm glad I was able to walk with someone while keeping a comfortable distance where we didn't have to talk, but could if we wanted to. Another reflected, I had been slack about visiting the hospital, but I went because he came with me. Shoji Morimoto has been advertising himself as a person who can eat and drink and give simple feedback, but do nothing more (laughs) since June 2018 and has received over 3000 requests. Whoa. Yeah. And he has about 270,000 followers on Twitter. Initially, he had offered his rent-a-person-who-does-nothing services for free, but he now charges 10,000 yen, which is roughly $96 per request. And people rent him for various reasons. Uh, At times, he'll participate in a gaming session to make up numbers, turn up to send off people who are moving away, accompany those filing for divorce, or listen to healthcare workers who become mentally unwell due to their exhausting work. Morimoto commits to doing nothing and basically just gives back-channel feedback when someone speaks to him. He says, I myself don't like to be cheered on by others. I get upset when people simply tell me to keep on trying. When someone is trying to do something, I think the best thing to do is to help lower the bar for them by staying at their side, which I think is very sweet. Yeah, I mean, he's more like a -a rent-a-friend, really. I mean, he's not really talking to them a whole lot, but just listening seems like... Yeah, not even rent-a-friend, but just rent-a-presence. Like, Uh just be here. And I love that (laughs) he says that part of his services is simple feedback. What does that exactly mean? What is simple feedback (laughs) in a situation where a couple is divorcing or they're basically using him as a therapist, just sort of like nodding, being like, oh, yeah, huh? Yeah, I mean, that's honestly what I was imagining, like, just very slow nod and going like, hmm. Hmm. Which is frankly, I mean, that's what therapists do. He's ready to be qualified. Yeah. (laughs) So a little bit of his backstory is uh, Morimoto got a job with a publisher after finishing a graduate degree, but found it hard to fit in and left. His boss said sarcastically, it doesn't matter if you're here or not. And (laughs) when he was troubled that he couldn't find anything to do on a long-term basis, he was inspired by a person who did nothing but get treated to meals. So not long after, he set up a Twitter account. One 36-year-old writer says she has rented Morimoto on at least 10 occasions. She asked him to stay beside her when meeting a man for the first time and also had him listen to her talk about her views on love, which she felt she couldn't divulge to her friends, and how she went on an undercover visit to a woman's adult entertainment establishment for her job. She said, He listened to me without shaming me about going to the adult entertainment shop. It felt like a support just to have him by my side without forcing his opinions on me. Nice. Yeah. And Morimoto receives words of gratitude from customers who state that the act of doing nothing serves as support. 
However, he does remain nonchalant about the praise, saying, I'm not doing it for that purpose. So my only response is, oh, really? (laughs) He he also doesn't want his work to be seen as an act of charity. He says, I'm not a friend or an acquaintance. I'm free of the bothersome things that accompany relationships, but can ease people's sense of loneliness. Maybe it's something like that for me. (laughs) Wow. I mean, it's a low pressure kind of thing. I get it. Yeah. Especially, it sounds like some of these things are for safety. It's like women saying, look, I just need somebody as a sort of presence to be like, yeah, you can't mess with me because there's another dude here watching. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. I mean, if the simple feedback doesn't include calling the police, it's kind of a placebo presence as opposed to to like actually, you know, save your bacon if that's what's called for in a situation. Yeah, but the other person doesn't know that. They don't know that he's rented. They're like, that's maybe her devoted boyfriend who's going to beat the crap out of them if they... (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, that's going to do it for this bonus episode. As always, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.